0: Hello and welcome to Mid-Coast Morning, CHLY's weekly current affairs show. I'm Joe Pugh, here's what we're following this week. Thursday saw the country's first observation of the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. I was able to take in the ceremony put on by the Snanemoch in Mafeo Sutton Park, and we'll share some of the proceedings in case you weren't able to be a part of the sizable crowd. And an update on the Fairy Creek situation, as this week a BC Supreme Court judge, refused to extend the injunction that had been in place since April. To find out the practical implications of this decision, I spoke with Andrew Gage from West Coast Environmental Law. And the city of Nanaimo is continuing its efforts to develop the recently purchased properties at the intersection of terminal and commercial. We spoke with citizens at a public consultation last week, and I was later able to follow up with Bill Sims, the city's head of engineering and public works. You'll hear those conversations later on in the show. We begin, though, with Thursday's event at Mafeo Sutton. As this story will be discussing the impact of residential schools and Indian hospitals, listeners may find the content disturbing. This past Thursday was the first nationally observed day for truth and reconciliation. At Mafeo Sutton Park, the Snenemukh led a ceremony featuring prayer, song, speeches, and the sharing of stories from residential school survivors. Snenemukh chief Mike Wise thanked all in attendance and spoke of the trauma and experiences undergone by his people.
1: We got here today to take a moment and reflect on a history of pain, sorrow, hope, strength, and resilience, to take a moment to reflect on the feelings of our people and how we can move forward together. So I want to thank you all for taking the time out of your life to stand with our S'n'emok people and all indigenous peoples showing your support for the survivors of residential school and Indian hospitals and the ancestors who perished carrying these tremendous burdens. I encourage you to take a moment to truly and meaningfully reflect on why we are gathered here this morning. Imagine your children forcefully torn away from you at a very young age and deposited at a residential school where they were often subject to all kinds of mental, physical, emotional and spiritual abuses in order to try remove our culture and way of life. All of them violently forbidden to speak their own language so were left behind in unmarked graves. Others were put to rest at the end of their life quietly, carrying these experiences in their hearts and minds. These residential schools went on for centuries until the late 1990s. The Nanaimo Indian Hospital operated in our territory, which was located adjacent to Vancouver Island University. At this Indian hospital, our people were subject to inhumane healthcare treatments. Our people were treated as experiments for sterilization and tortured. These are the experiences that live within our people. And these are the causes as to why Stanemok people distrust the BC healthcare system and why it needs an immediate overhaul to become relevant and culturally appropriate. For generations now, to this day, Stanemok people walk through life carrying these burdens without acknowledgement and denial of these violent experiences of our history. This history is passed on to our young people, causing intergenerational trauma within our families and community. But today is a day filled with encouragement. All of you gather here this morning to tell the survivors and ancestors, we see you. We acknowledge you and we honour you now and forever. I want to thank each and every one of you for standing in solidarity, supporting the truths of our people and standing in unity with an unwavering commitment to the resolutions that lie ahead. Urging Canada to bring forward meaningful, long-lasting, immediate and robust justice for their actions and supporting a path of healing and peace, the road to truth and reconciliation also brings a sense of hope, strength, perseverance, resilience, see, and unity. The work ahead of us undoubtedly will be challenging, but overdue and necessary. We must undo the shackles to colonial ways of thinking, actions, laws, and policies that are the cause of inequity, injustice, and imbalance within society and between peoples. And reinforce respect for indigenous cultures, rights, and titles. This is a fundamental way you can all restore hope and unity for the children, grandchildren, and those unborn. I want to also share with you this, the name of pole that you see here today. This pole is called carved by my brother Yusitza, and The tree was donated by Mosaic. It is a powerful, symbolic cultural expression and reminder of the responsibility everyone as the journey of truth and reconciliation, not today, but every day. Moving forward in a good way, binding us together to these commitments with unity and a shared understanding provides an opportunity for us to heal together, to stand tall together, and make things right for our future generations. For that, on behalf of our Stenemuch Mustayo. I want to thank you all.
0: Snenemukh <laughs> Chief Mike Wise, speaking at Thursday's event at Mafeo Sutton Park, marking the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. The event also saw speeches from Nanaimo Mayor Leonard Krogh and MLA Sheila Malcolmson, as well as School District 68 Chair Charlene McKay. A huge cheer was heard for Noel Brown, carver of the 50-foot totem pole just erected in Mafeo Sutton Park as well as his father, Jerry, who talked about how his son quit a job to get into carving.
2: Remember the first day he quit, I
3: swore at him upside, one side, down the other side. <laughs> swore at him night and day for about three days. He's a top framer building homes. And Tommy said, no more. I want him to stay home. I want, to want the kids to see him want the kids to grow up with a father. I want them with a the job at home. I said, Well, what the hell are you going to do? She said, I'm going to carve. Carve? What the hell is that? <laughs> so I take it back in front.
0: Auntie Lolly Good from Snanemoch also shared some of her writing, which she says helped her through her experiences as a residential school survivor.
3: Being a fourth-generation residential school survivor, I suffered mentally, emotionally, physically, abandonment, and rejection. Somehow, I was able to express my lost soul in writing. Finding Nima. No, not Nemo. <laughs> Nima in this right is me. Nima was a dysfunctional lost fish. She perceives that she lived in an overcrowded fishbowl. She swam through her infant life with much uncertainty and discontent. Her youthful life endured raging waves of tribulation and despair, leaving her with major anxiety, low self-esteem, and feeling rejected. Her teens were unbearably confusing. This included battles of the mind, unhealthy choices, loneliness, and loss of identity. Her adult life was unrelenting, alcohol became her choice to drink when sad or to drink to celebrate. This left her with shame, resentment, heartache, anger, and hopelessness. All of the above and all of her life stressors caused Nima's mind to shut down. By this happening, only added more burdens for her to bear. Nima became discontented to life itself for a time. But one day, Nima jumped out of the crowded fishbowl and swam out to sea. By this action, her life was never the same. While Nima was coasting along the water shoreline, she heard someone call her name. Nima looked here and there and round and round, then she saw a bird, and the bird said to her, Nima, I've been with you all along while you were going through your life's journey. I want you to know that you are loved. You can transform now, come and be a raven with me. So Nima willingly joined her new friend, the raven. The raven shared with Nima many signs and wonders. Amongst the signs, he gave our wisdom, compassion, knowledge, understanding, and the will to live life. Nima vows to use her new signs carefully and wisely. Today, Nima boldly states, that her life has played out the way it was supposed to. She concludes with just knowing that I was not alone on my life's journey. Somehow helps me to embrace my life and all its new challenges with complete awareness. Needs tight. me Let me be the girl I was meant to be Let me cry so that you can hold me Let me fall so you can comfort me Let me laugh so you can laugh with me Let me ask so you can teach me. Let me make mistakes so you can correct me. Let me wander so you can guide me. Let me say I love you. Maybe one day all this will come true.
0: She also shared a song she wrote in Hulka
3: The song I'd like to sing is um, Asking for Help.
0: After the formal ceremony, I was able to wander through the various tents and displays set up around the park. At one of them, I heard from Amy Blow, a learning coordinator with the school district. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to explain a little bit about what's going on here.
4: I absolutely would love to. Uh, So I'm here with Nanaimo Ladysmith Public Schools. And this is the book, is a free book today called Shwaalakwa. And I'm still working on my pronunciation. I want to try it again, Shwaalakwa. And it is for family. And so this book is made with our learning coordinator, Tanis Calder, and she works with the Halkaminam teachers in the school district. And so you can see their names in the front of the book to give them their credit, of course. The back of the book also features a QR code. And so the book can be read aloud in Halkaminam to you. And there are other books in the series here. This one is about the weather, this one, this little guy is going on a camus adventure, and this one is I See Shekhanatan, and it is a story about uh, looking for footprints. And
0: That's so cool. Uh, do they all have the QR codes in them?
4: They do, at the back. And so they can also be seen digitally on the NLPS Learns website under the Indigenous Education.
0: I also bumped into Lisa Marie Barron, winner of our riding in Nanaimo Ladysmith and soon to be our MP. Oh, you took in today's event from the audience. Um, what did you make of it?
5: Oh, it's just such a powerful experience to be surrounded by, um, you know, just the sea of orange and support and uh, all of these people who have come out for the first ever ever day of um Uh, of uh, Truth (laughs) High, of Truth and Reconciliation, and it's just amazing to be part of it and to be here.
0: You're in a very unique position in that you've got more political power than anyone else in the audience to impact reconciliation and change. How do you plan to use that?
5: Yeah, well, I'm still being sworn in next week. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I mean, clearly this community is uh, committed to putting reconciliation, the communities in this riding, truth and reconciliation at the forefront. And uh, I'll continue to do the work alongside Jugmeet Singh and New Democrats of making sure that that is a priority every step of the way. Um, you know, Jugmeet's doing a lot of great work and I'm committed to doing the same alongside him. And I'm excited to get started.
0: All right, thank you for uh, agreeing to speak.
5: Thank you, yeah.
0: Also on display was the Vancouver Island Exhibition's Truth and Reconciliation Quilt, which was making its second ever public appearance. Here's Karen Streeter, president of the VIX, explaining a bit about the quilt to me.
6: Okay, the Reconciliation Quilt is obviously a quilt that we've been working on for about three years now and it has the 94 Calls to Action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We had 94 people uh, design a quilt square to correspond to the um, one of the 94 Calls to Action and what it meant to them, and as you can see it's finally been sewn together and it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful work of art. Um, During the Vancouver Island Exhibition in August, we presented the quilt and we had a blessing ceremony by Slenemo Elders, uh, Bill White and uh, Willie Pierre, which was very, very moving. And now we hope to uh, share this quilt uh, around at different places so everybody can see it.
0: I'm just wondering, I'm curious, is... um Is there a way of like checking off the squares, if you will, each time any of the calls to action are answered or met?
6: Oh, well, that's something we could uh, probably look into. Um, If you go to our website, www.vix.ca, we have all the quilt squares listed on our website.
0: And finally, I was able to speak with Joy Bremner, president of the Mid-Island Métis. How, How has the day been going so far for you?
7: Excellent. You know, the number of people that we are seeing, that we know, the people we're meeting because they have questions and what we're doing here, and it's fantastic. I think it's an incredible event for the city of Nanaimo and for all of the nations that are here.
0: Anything you'd like to pass along to people who weren't able to attend the event in person? Anything you'd like them to to know when on here?
7: You know, even you know, as the day goes forward, if they were unable to attend, you know We're hopeful they had thoughts around the purpose of today and why we've all shown up. Taking the risk of being rained on but it's been a gorgeous day which the sun is shining on this event so that's fantastic. We look forward to the event year after year and I know definitely you can connect with any of the nations going forward. Many of us have information. Uh, we sold out all of our orange shirts, so but other nations certainly have a lot. And yeah, it's a coming together in a good way.
0: Many of the speakers referred to the day as one with a lot of mixed emotions. But almost everyone remarked upon the huge turnout, pointing to it as a sign of hope for the future. The establishment of the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation was one of the 94 calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in 2015. The vast majority of those calls remain unanswered, further highlighting how important the day is and how much work remains to be done when it comes to reconciliation in Canada. We close this segment with a section from the drum group at the ceremony, which can be found in its entirety on YouTube if you search for Day for Truth and Reconciliation Nanaimo. You're listening to Midcoast Morning on CHLY. And now an update in the Ferry Creek logging saga we've been following. This week, a BC Supreme Court judge denied Teal Cedar Forestry's request to extend an injunction that had been in place since April. The forestry company has since appealed the ruling, but in the meantime, the injunction has expired. In his decision, BC Supreme Court Justice Douglas Thompson explained that the way the RCMP was enforcing the court-ordered injunction was doing harm to the court's very reputation, which led him to decide against extending it. To try and make sense of the decision, I once again spoke with Andrew Gage, staff lawyer at West Coast Environmental Law. First of all, from a legal standpoint, I want to know what happens with the injunction expired. How does that change the situation on the ground?
8: Well, what the judge said is that the RCMP and the authorities can continue to deal with the uh, protesters on the basis of, of criminal law. Um, so in, in theory, uh, the RCMP could have remained there and, and uh, continued to issue charges under uh, common nuisance or criminal law provisions related to blocking public roads. Um, they appear not to have done that. They instead have left. Um, so that very much seems to, to mean that uh, there's just a um, the, the protests are being left to to, to run their course, and and that uh, you know I understand why Teal Jones might feel frustrated by that, but that there's a something of an impasse at the moment.
0: Uh, that's really interesting. What you say is there any um, reason that the RCMP would have gone home uh, when they still have the ability to pursue these protesters under criminal law? When it sounds like from the judge's decision, from what he wrote, that that certainly wouldn't be hard to do from a legal standpoint.
8: Yeah, I mean, uh, the I, I can't, clearly can't speak for the RCMP on that. I mean, I think the uh, the RCMP always uh, did this on the scale that they were doing it because they viewed themselves as enforcing the injunction. Uh, you know, from my point of view, some of what they were doing was actually count- counter the injunction. But it seems relatively clear that they believed that they were enforcing the injunction, that that's what justified the massive expanded use of resources and, and level of involvement that they had there you know it does raise interesting questions about why the government won't enforce uh, unless there's actually an order from the uh, from the courts uh, requiring them to enforce something uh, yeah in the past there there have been some legal academics who have suggested that what logging companies should be asking for is not an injunction but an order confirming that the court that the that the RCMP has an obligation to enforce existing law uh, and that the province's policy on civil disobedience which I think is part of the RCMP's concern here, um, to not prevent uh, the enforcement of the law.
0: And so what you've said in your answers is really, I think, interesting, especially because of the reasons the justice gave uh, for not extending the injunction. Before we get to those, I just want to check in. What happens while the appeal process is ongoing? Is everything, the injunction is just off the table, kind of?
8: The injunction's off the table. It would not surprise me if uh, Teal Jones in their appeal asked the B.C. Court of Appeal to uh, in some way reissue the injunction. I think that's relatively unlikely, but um, it wouldn't be completely surprising if there were some motion made to the Court of Appeal asking them to, to weigh in on whether there should be an injunction in place.
0: And now going back to the actual decision itself... The judge was very clear in writing it that the activities of the protesters are illegal that they're causing significant and irreparable harm to teal cedar Uh, he also stated that when he was considering sort of interest in the public good that he can't consider the importance of old growth forests uh, just because of constitutional constraints on judicial powers so the reason he gave for not extending the injunction uh, was basically that the enforcement of it by the RCMP has led to what he called serious and substantial infringement of civil liberties, including impairment of the freedom of the press. So he said that that hurts the very reputation of the court, and that was kind of the reason he gave for not extending the injunction. I'm wondering if that's uh, something that has precedent or what you make of that.
8: Yeah, I'm not aware of any cases that have where a court's gone quite that far. There, there has been judges in the past have expressed some concern that being by being put into this role of having to side with private parties over a, in a matter that's clearly a public interest debate, a, a broad political debate, that they that, that can harm uh, the reputation of the court. But they've never, uh, to my knowledge, sort of used that as a reason to turn it to turn down issuing the injection. Uh, nor have we had cases where I mean the, the, the Wood case, I guess, uh, is the obvious another uh, obvious example where where there's certainly allegations of police. Uh, acting, uh, very violently and, and the protesters would say inappropriately. Um, but, but this case was unusual. I think both, um, in the, in the fact that, uh, the the, 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 there was that type of violence, but also that the, uh, the judge in question had actually already been, had already ruled on the fact that the police were going well beyond their enforcement powers. Uh, you know, we had a judgment back in, I think it was July saying, uh, which we've discussed previously, you know, saying, um, that the RCMP uh, were enforcement zones were uh, well beyond what was justified under the injunction. Um, and uh, it's quite, I think, I think probably this case needs to be understood in that context. You had a judge who was managing this case over time who had already called the RCMP out on the fact that they were acting inappropriately and really had no recourse to bring the RCMP back into line other than by saying, well, in that case, if you're using the injunction as an excuse to do this type of activity, uh, you know, we can't
0: extend the injury. So some of the reasons um, he cited, some of the things that he felt the RCMP were doing that were going too far were basically taking off their badges or making themselves anonymous. Some of the officers. Mm-hmm. He also spent a lot of the decision talking about um, this thin blue line thin patch. Blue line. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's a symbol that some police officers have taken up wearing as a sign of solidarity with each other, but it's also. Uh, quite controversial and last year the RCMP ordered its members not to wear it um, but a number of them were documented wearing it at Ferry Creek and the justice again basically said well if you're wearing this while you're enforcing a court-ordered injunction then it reflects very poorly on the court and I don't know I can't um, I can't get over how interesting I find it that the judge basically <laughs> said, uh, you've got to stop this, not because like the public good is just that police um, going too far makes the court system look bad because it sort of allowed you to do this.
8: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree that those sections are interesting for sure. Um, I, I think that that has to be taken in the context of a number of complaints that the judge had. Um uh, you know, there was also reference to to particular incidents where the RCMP, although he felt that the RCMP generally had had been uh, some even handed in their enforcement, that there were incidents. Uh, he mentioned one where I mean, people were pepper sprayed in the face. You know, masks were pulled down and pep, protesters pepper sprayed in the face. He mentioned one where a guitar was stomped on, and and as, as having gone too far. He clearly was concerned about the the restrictions, the ongoing restrictions on media access and on public access to the area. So. Yes, those comments about the thin blue line are, are significant, but I don't think we should leave the impression that that was, you know, the judge's sole or major concern. That this is clearly part of a broader um, uh, set of impacts on on civil liberties. And I think, I understood in that context, the, the the fact that the thin blue line has been uh, identified by many as sort of being racist or discriminatory um, it fits into that concern about civil rights generally.
0: Yes, certainly. I'm wondering, I'm reading this decision as someone who has no legal expertise at all. Uh, when you took a look at it, was there anything else that stood out to you as particularly interesting or worth worth discussion?
8: Several things. And I guess the question is which ones to focus on. Um, I mean, you mentioned the fact that the judge uh, refused to uh, consider the value of old growth for climate change suppression. I mean, as a public interest environmental lawyer, I think it's concerning that um, Climate change, yet again, is being relegated as um, or is being viewed as sort of a political question, um, as opposed to a uh, something that's having huge impacts on legal rights. Uh, the, the judge view the reason the judge said this is not something I can consider is he because apparently he viewed climate change and the role of old growth in, in preventing that as, as a matter that's purely political, uh, but it has huge implications for for the rights of of all of us uh, people around the world. Uh, but in a, separate from that, and going back to sort of more, uh, maybe a more mainstream legal analysis, I mean, there's some very interesting questions about, um, you know, the judge is essentially saying that the province's policy on civil disobedience is what gave rise to the uh, the enforcement gap, I think he calls it, um, that gave rise to the injunction in the first place. Um, and that, that policy is really, you know, it, it's been around for years. It's an interesting policy that that basically where they, uh, the 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 province says we won't, we won't generally pursue charges against people engaged in civil disobedience. There's a range of factors that will be considered when we decide whether or not to. Um, the judge's reasons of, of concern about this enforcement gap could encourage situations where, um, uh, where injunctions will be available against uh, peaceful protest, uh, but the moment it becomes more serious injunctions are no longer available because the criminal law could, uh, could be invoked at that point. Uh, and that's kind of a weird result. Uh, but the, you know, the, the people who are most um, uh, acting most civilly and in they're in most likely to get sued as a result of this province the province's policy on here is to get an injunction that, as we discussed in our previous interview, that the law, logging company has to actually sue someone. Um, but then the moment you become more... Um, Militant uh, no and are actually engaged in vandalism or other activities that bring you outside of that policy, so the injunction won't be available. Um, yep, yeah, that's. I have mixed feelings about that, um, and I think that that should could be a matter of public discussion.
0: So, where do you think this leaves the situation um, in Fairy Creek right now? You mentioned no injunction until we hear the appeal. Mm-hmm. The police have kind of packed up and left for all intents and purposes. Does it fall to, I guess, the local um, branches of police departments down near Ferry Creek to to enforce something?
8: Yeah. I mean, in terms of the, um, I think in terms of criminal law enforcement, that's, that's right. Um, the, you know, there's clearly going to be tensions between the company the logging company and their employees and the protesters on the other hand, that, uh, um, that hopefully will remain peaceful and, 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 uh, civil. The, the, um, I think the other thing that's going on here right now is the province of BC promised that they were going to have an expert panel uh, give them advice on what areas of old growth uh, met the criteria for, for deferral under the recommendations of the old growth uh, strategic review that was done last year. Uh, this should have been done you know, a year ago. Uh, you know, should have had their, their experts when they first said they were going to implement the recommendations of the panel. They should have had experts weigh in on what areas uh, of old growth should be uh, deferred have logging deferred under those uh, things it wasn't but we're waiting for the the apparently the province at least it's reported that the province has the report now um uh but there's still seeking clarification on it so one of the big question marks is particularly with, with that report coming to the province and with the federal government promising 50 million dollars towards uh, old growth protection obviously that, that's an election promise it's not delivered on yet you know is there a path to the province, actually, uh, coming up with some solution would see some or all of these areas uh, deferred for logging, and, and can defuse the situation that right that way. Or are we still in sort of a holding pattern of protesters refusing to move because they want the area area protected, and the company, you know, proceeding to log because they have the right to do that. In fact, the the legal obligation to do that of the Forest Act. Um, yeah, it it would be nice to get out of the sort of Um, the narrow boxes we've been put into and actually have a conversation about is it possible to protect these forests in a way that uh, will be a win-win for everyone.
0: Andrew Gage, staff lawyer with West Coast Environmental Law on a B.C. Supreme Court justice's decision not to extend the injunction in place at Ferry Creek. You're listening to Midcoast Morning on CHLY. Last Saturday in downtown Nanaimo, the city closed off a section of Commercial Street for public consultation on what to do with the site of the former Gene Burns building. Proposals for the space include a public park or plaza, as well as some options involving commercial buildings. A transit exchange is also planned for the area right beside the Gene Burns building. My colleague Arby Frew and I spoke with some Nanaimo residents at the consultation to get their opinions on the project.
9: My name is Kevin Shaw, I'm the president of the Victoria Crescent Association. But more so, I live here.
0: What would you prefer to see the city trying to do with this space?
9: Road's got to stay open number one. Number two, the space where Gene Burns is, this has got to be retail uh, down below put in some stores, put in some little cafes with seats that come out during the day, go back in during the night uh, and right above it, put the maximum you can do, whether it be four to six stories of residential, that be apartments uh, or condos. We have to have more people living downtown, more people than downtown living will shop in our stores, eat in our restaurants, help out the mom and pop businesses survive And then also more people living downtown like that with some money and walking around will have eyes and ears on the street that will then uh, force out the criminal element. It's Tim McGrath.
0: Tim McGrath. Yep. What would you prefer to see the city doing with the space?
8: Quite honestly, the downtown will only survive if people live here. Put in retail on the ground floors the first two floors even retail and then maybe some offices or small businesses on the second floor and then from third and, and up they can either have condos or rentals or whatever this is prime real estate to to turn it into a parking lot is no better all they're doing is raising the ground level they're going to spend 9 million dollars to raise the ground level that's absurd, ludicrous It's it's beyond common sense.
10: My name is Willow Friday. Um, uh, I have some major concerns about the um, the location and the size of it. Being able to actually um, uh, satisfy the needs of the public transportation system. It's a very small location. It um, doesn't have um, a wide enough berth. If an emergency vehicle needed to get in there for some sort of stroke or heart attack or something, there's nowhere to... Uh, reroute the buses, because that would take up the entire width of the, the area there. So it's not, I don't think it's a logistical um, good layout.
0: What alternatives would you uh, propose for the city to consider for the space?
10: I really think that where the bus station, bus station currently is has enough space and is in the right location to satisfy downtown Nanaimo and the whole city of Nanaimo. It's got, you have opportunities for, it because it's a big square, as opposed to just a long sliver. I think that it's logistically a great spot, and I think that they need to work harder to make that happen, to to build the relationships with the Snunaymu First Nations, so that they're making sure that they are not just appropriating land, and that they're working with them on this, and I think that they should really work hard to make a go of that location.
2: So, um, what are your thoughts on... this house? Right? <laughs> boss? I'm gonna start by... You.
11: Using myself. Sure, that's and a good plan.
2: Yeah, 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 sure. And the peck squatty canetum. Or in English, that would be Larry Ayahuasco. And on this project, why would the city buy a viable piece of commercial stock
9: to could possibly
2: pollution and noise in our central downtown core? I really do not think this project was thought through. I watched them take the photographs for their pamphlets in the last two weeks. This seems like a rush hearing just to let us know what they are going to do. And I do not believe they will actually listen to us and make a common sense decision. We already have bus stops built where the court Theatre was installed years ago and they're now empty in dormant or free parking in the downtown core on the
0: waterfront. After the event, I was able to follow up with Bill Sims, General Manager of Engineering and Public Works with the city. What was the feedback like from the event?
12: Well, the, the feedback was was, I would say, some people expressed concerns, and a lot of people expressed support. And there was a, a few uh, residents and business owners in the immediate area that you know had some questions. And, and uh, then there was a, a lot of folks that were really pleased to see something being done with uh, an underused underused property in the downtown core.
0: So just to make sure we're on the same page, um, would you agree that it's fair to say that with this project, there's two main pieces? There's the transit hub, which is going in front of uh, or in the space of the former print shop and the black and blue tattoo in space of those buildings. And then the second piece would be um, the the former Gene Burns building, the kind of the pit now is like a separate space. And there are a few different proposals for what can go there, including... Um plazas or a public park or some kind of commercial building is that fair to characterize this i I think it's
12: it's it's it, yeah it's not unfair, but at the same time, I would say it's a little more nuanced and and um complex than that. so we have uh a number of issues going on or a number of pro potential uh work going on in the immediate area and and that's all sort of driven into this the need for this project so one of them is that we we need to do some infrastructure upgrades and improvements to Terminal Avenue, uh, and and hopefully have Terminal Avenue feel more like a pedestrian friendly space, similar to the Terminal Nickel Reimagined plan that was done um, a few years ago by the, sort of the instigation of a number of community members. So that's that's one component. The the other one is that the, there's a need there's a, a strong identified need for a transit exchange in the downtown core and the current location on front street is a is a temporary location until that property develops further so um it, it's been sort of looking for a permanent home for a number of years and it's this provides that opportunity to um, have an off street like so a Transit exchange that's going to be safe for not only vehicular tra- traffic but pedestrians and transit riders as well so this that creates the space for that safe um zone and then the opportunity to you know or the the other piece of this is uh, the um as you say the the former gene burns site the you know, city council has been extremely um what's the right word sort of interested i guess in Reclaiming some of those undeveloped sites in the downtown, because recognizing having a hole in the ground is is obviously not attractive, but it's also uh, not wise economic, and it just it just doesn't contribute well to the the field. so the the unfortunate fire of the gene burns and that sort of vibrant space that was there is is you know missing. you know it's like a a hole in a hole in your mouth or a hole, a missing tooth. Another part of this uh, project is that the intersection that everybody loves to hate at Wallace, Victoria, Commercial, and Albert. So that's that's a complicated, challenging intersection that nobody really appreciates, but everybody seems to want to use. And so how do we address that? And so that's, that's kind of rolling into this project. And then there's a few other little elements, like there's the so-called uh, Tideline Park at the corner of uh, Victoria and Albert, the Pioneer Park, uh, which is at the, in front of the old fire hall and the Italian fountain uh, as well. So these, these public spaces are, you know, if we can fold this whole thing into one cohesive uh, project, I think that's, that's very valuable. So and there's still yet, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, Joe, go ahead.
0: <laughs> so you're describing quite a few, I guess, balls in the air here and quite a few things in play. Um, I'm just right. wondering what, where all of this is in terms of the moving along process. Right. And that's, and that's, yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, the
12: other, and I was just about to say, the other consideration that we have is looking at commercial street as a whole, right from uh, this intersection, like the intersection of Albert, Victoria, uh, Wallace, all the way to uh, Dallas square or front street. So looking at as a cohesive whole and not one can, you know, contiguous um, similar look and feel, street rather than you know this is an isolated project and commercial is something different we want to have that continuity so that people feel like they're um in the downtown no matter matter where they are along that that one particular backbone so the ball's in the air you're correct so there's a, a few things that we know need to be done and there's not much opportunity to to change, and that's sort of the infrastructure that's underneath Terminal Avenue. So that that that's in need of rehabilitation. That and the the main uh, corridor, let's call it between the curbs on T- Terminal Avenue, also needs rehabilitation, and it will need it again since or needed because of the infrastructure redevelopment. So we're working with the Ministry of Transportation and Highways, who is the owner of that road base, to 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 do that project. So that that's that's happening the other the other thing that is is maybe not as solid but is is moving in that direction is the transit you know the potential for a transit exchange here looks quite solid um and it's and so that's kind of moving along and it it's it's not a hundred percent yet but we're we're getting to that point um, the balance of it the you know the let's call it the, the old gene burn site and the um the the street commercial that that's still being talked about, thought about uh concepts developed for um so that there, there there's nothing been set in stone, and that timeline could be much longer, depending on funding, depending on what the
0: final plans are, okay, so just to make sure I got that all um there are going <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm a bit worried <laughs> sometimes. No, um, it's quite all right. So there are going to be there's going to be work done on Terminal Ave, the road itself, in the near future. That's, that's a certainty. Uh, it's that's correct. It's almost a certainty. The transit hub proposal is getting to the point where it's that's going to be what's happening in that space, and then much more in the air and up for modeling or to be shaped is what's going to happen in the the pit at Gene Burns. Is that fair? Yep, that's fair. Yep. Okay. And earlier you talked about wanting to make the city have more of a, a cohesive feel to its downtown. And as someone who's only come here about a year ago, that was something I noticed about the downtown. How, how do we get that cohesive feel from a, from an engineering department um, viewpoint? What kinds of things do you look at to do that?
12: Well, so the, from an engineering part, department viewpoint, I just want to sort of caution. This is from a corporate. The city... The city's point of view like so what can the city of nanaimo not only just engineering but also our planning and also our parks and rec staff so you know we're yes engineering is taking the lead on this but this is a, a an entire um departmental or department pardon entitled entire corporate uh, approach so we're not doing this in isolation so while engineering might be um concerned about the curbs and the sidewalks and the streetlights, uh, parks may be concerned about some of the public spaces and a planning may be concerned about the look and feel or the design elements. All of us working together are, are striving to make, to, to find the, the right, excuse me, the right balance for that cohesive look and feel. So we're, it's, re- it's really about developing an urban design and serving that urban, urban design, if that makes sense. So we, we want to have a, an urban design feel. And then how does the engineering or the, the, the hardscape elements serve that, that design feel? Does that, does that make sense?
0: I think so. So when you say an urban design feel, how, how do you get that or what kind of urban design feel?
12: So we've got a number of professionals involved that are have experience not only in planning but also uh, in developing urban spaces in and, and planning for urban spaces and designing urban spaces um so there's there's a number of balls in the air on that particular front but our main concern is to have this as a harmonious thing so um what what do we want? commercial to look like let's let's just throw as as purely as an example one big wide concrete um or stamped concrete um street right from building to building with bollards down each side to allow traffic but also allow easy pedestrian movement back and forth it just that's just i'm just not even presupposing that that's got any i'm just throwing out an example just sort of a all of commercial feels like a plaza as. But it's it has vehicular traffic, so we have you know cars continuing to move back and forth. But that's just purely an example of a one element of urban design. It'll function well for um, the chamber of commerce's night market. It can function well for other events, and it'll just feel like it'll tie all the buildings together and and all that sort of stuff. Now remember, this is an engineering guy talking about planning and design concepts, so people may be cynical to hear me say those things. <laughs> but my, my whole point is trying to keep things coherent, um, and cohesive from the entire the entirety of the, the
0: spectrum. Of, uh, right, the so from yeah. the sounds of it, um, when trying to decide what to do with this hole in the ground, uh, it's really a much bigger question for the city than just that one space. It's how can we make that one space fit with our vision for um, yeah. The rest of the downtown that is correct yes yeah we're we're you know uh, yeah I think that's that's what
12: um, we're trying to communicate out there and and then you know as as this project is developing you know we're we're getting more and more information out there uh, I don't think we're as complete as we'd you know we don't have everything tied up in a neat bow but you know, really, we've only just uh, acquired the properties in that area um, very, very recently. So now it's like as of August, you know, so it, now it's like, OK, we've got these properties. Here's what is happening in the immediate area. What else can we do? And and we're looking for that public input and feedback.
0: I see. Are there any common concerns or things you're hearing from the public that you'd like to take the opportunity to address in a more public sphere?
12: Well, there's, you know, the the people have their, you know, sort of special concerns or special interests. You know, somebody might say, well, why do we even need to move the transit exchange at all? Uh, Somebody else might say, don't, don't close commercial. Uh, Somebody else might say, why, why do we need yet another park in the downtown core? And all of these are valid questions to consider, like, do, do we need another park in the downtown core? So that. That's the kind of stuff that we'll chew on, um, and and reflect back upon in in the next month or so when we we say this is what we've heard from our public consultation. So not only we've had this open house uh, on Saturday, we've also had some targeted consultations, and then we've got this online stuff, and we're getting uh, tremendous feedback online as well. So it, it's that's a bit of a shift. So we may have seen. Like you may have seen 20 or 30 people milling around, but we're in the the hundreds, the three to 400 range of online.
0: And so what happens next in the process?
12: Exactly that is that we sort of digest and report out on what happens next or or what we heard, I should pardon me, what, what, what we've heard from the public process. In the meanwhile, we'll continue to refine and design some of the concepts and you know, really, we want to hear, you know, we'll take that back publicly, but also we council is really very interested in this whole area. You know, from the council's point of view, the, the downtown is a very high priority and uh, they really want to have some um, discussion amongst themselves, you know, as a council, you know, how, how do we want this to look? And and I think that's, that's kind of, those are all of what will be happening in the next couple of months.
0: Okay, and circling back, just on the three proposals um, for the building site, uh, is there already any anything you can report on how the public felt about those, um, or anything you've already taken into account from what you heard on Saturday and what has been coming in online and through the other um, avenues? Well, I, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not, a, I haven't seen any of the stuff that's coming online. I can tell you what I heard
12: um, with the the folks that were there on saturday and a, a lot of people were very interested in in seeing some form of building uh replaced some economic um contribution to feedback you know and i think that's a that's a very valid a valid one but again that's you know that's me just hearing that i think um I, we don't want to presuppose anything here and one one thing that i've Was tried to be clear with folks and and certainly with council on is that there's three sketches that have been put out there and and variations thereof. Um, They're just concepts to start um, discussion. It's not intended to be, you know, pick one of these three things and and that's what we're going to start building. It's not that at all. It's like, Here's what we could do with this space. How does that how does that resonate with folks? And if if it doesn't, then well, we we really truly want to get this right. We really want to make sure that this is a um, this is a, you know a benefit to the community as a whole, not just um, you know, filling in the hole and making it look pretty. It, 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 we really want to get this space and the, the look and feel and the you know the, the, all of the urban design elements. We want to get it right. We want to, we want this to be a vibrant
0: public area. Bill Sims, General Manager of Engineering and Public Works with the City of Nanaimo. That's our show for today. I'm Joe Pugh, host and producer of Midcoast Morning. For everyone at CHLY, thanks so much for listening.
5: For everyone at CHLY, thanks again for listening.